Okay, while everybody is uh, finding their seats, let me remind you of a couple of things. First of all, this Saturday we're going to have a church family fun day from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. here at the church. So as I said in an announcement I sent out today, these things are important for the body, the local body of believers, the church family. Uh, opportunity for us to uh, get to know each other, spend time with each other. And even if though we're a small church, I continue to hear stories about one person or another who is asked, well, do you know so-and-so? And then it happens to be somebody who sits three seats from them, and they go, no. So it's uh, it's important to know the people that are in the congregation so we can pray intelligently for them and be aware of what is going on. Okay, um, the other announcement is that uh, Camp Arete uh, may still be in need of funds. Are you got it covered? No, okay. Camp Arete charges uh, campers uh, less than what camp costs us. You know, this is a great tradition. This was common in a previous era. Dallas Seminary for many, many, many years under Lewis Berry Chafer and under Dr. Walverd, charged about half or less students for tuition because it cost a lot. The rest was supplied through donations. Uh, I grew up going to Camp Penile. The same thing was true there, that about half the cost of a camper going to camp was paid for, was what was charged, and the rest came in through additional donations because money wasn't to be an object uh, to, that would prevent people from being able to go and be encouraged spiritually and being taught the Word of God. And so Rete has that same kind of policy. Uh, and so there's a number of donations that come in, but at this point, uh, they're a little short. So uh, as of this morning, it was about 3,000. It's a little bit less. Some of that's been chopped down, maybe a 1,000 or two. And so uh, there's still a, still a need there. So be in prayer for that. And... Uh, respond to that so the lord the lord is providing how shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word thy word have i hid in my heart that i might not sin against thee thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path jesus prayed to the father sanctify them in truth thy word is truth for the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of uh, silent prayer to make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord to continue enjoying our walk with the Lord, walk, walking by the Spirit. When we sin, that rapport is broken. The dynamics of the spiritual life cease, and we need to recover, and that's simply by uh, confession of sin. However, that only gets us back in the house. It doesn't get us enjoying what's in the house. That's the walk. Too many people have this idea, if I just confess sin, everything else is automatic. That is mysticism. That is Keswick. That is, that's evil. Okay? It's a dynamic relationship involved in studying the Word and growing and maturing. And so it's not just a static position. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's a great privilege to come together to be with other believers, to enjoy our fellowship with you and as it impacts our relationship with others. Father, we thank you for the joy that we have of our salvation. We thank you for the grace that you have given us, the grace in salvation, the grace in the spiritual life, grace in coming to understand the truth of your word and how it transforms our lives, changes us, and you use it to conform us to the image of of Jesus Christ. Now, Father, we pray that as we study today about spiritual gifts and what you have provided for us in that area, we pray that you would help us to understand these grace gifts and their significance. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, on last Thursday night, 
We did not cover First Peter, but I gave a review of the Israel trip. There was one part of the Israel trip that I did not cover last week that was uh, of great significance to everybody who was on the trip. One of the high points, I think, for everybody, although uh, not in their, probably not their highest points, those were all spiritual. And so I came in today and I remembered I didn't have those pictures up last week, so I thought that I would put them up uh, tonight. And as I was doing that, I was talking to John uh, Williamson, and John happened to go on a trip to Israel with Dallas Seminary. And the day they arrived uh, coincided with the opening of the American Embassy in Jerusalem. And so I'm going to show you our pictures, and then I'm going to ask John to come up and tell you what he saw. Uh, I heard a lady call into Rush Limbaugh that uh, four or five days later, and she described what Jerusalem was like on that day. You never saw the news media do anything but show you a picture that was something like this. The sign in the middle of the picture points to the U.S. Embassy. And they would talk all about it, but they would never show you what was really going on in Jerusalem because it was a Trump fest. And John will talk about that. So we had one day, and this was the road that goes up to the new uh, embassy. It is not, interestingly enough, it's not across the 67 line. It is just on the border of that 67 line, which would be dividing East and West Jerusalem. Um, so that's a very political uh, politicized location. So here's the seal, the American seal on the outside of the building. And um, we probably caused a little bit of heart failure to some of the security guards because the bus pulled up and we just all jumped out, all 32 of us, and ran to the embassy. And we stayed outside the, you know, the barricade lines that you see here, but nevertheless, to have 30 people just char that they don't know who they are just charging the embassy gave these guys heart failure. Here's the plaque that is on the outside of the building, the Embassy of the United States of America, Jerusalem, uh, Israel. Donald J. Trump, President. Uh, Michael uh, Pence, Vice President, dedicated by David Friedman, uh, Ambassador to the State of Israel, May 14, 2018. And then here are uh, all of our people bunched up together under the... Uh, uh, under the seal of the United States. So, John, come up real quick. I'm going to give you the handheld here. Good, it's turned on. So just give a little eyewitness account of what you saw. Well, I went on a Dallas Theological Seminary trip to Israel. It was three weeks long, but the day I got I landed was the day they opened the embassy, and we landed in Tel Aviv and went straight to Jerusalem. So by the time I got there, the ceremony was already over, but I took off immediately on my own, left the rest of the group behind, and made my way by bus over to, to check out the embassy. And they had these huge banners all over the place, the big blue banners. I got pictures of them, I can bring up some other time, that said uh, had two different phrases on them. One was, Trump makes Israel great, and the second was, Trump is a friend of Israel. And it was a big party the entire time. Everyone was dancing. Everyone loved, was just, you know, loving America, loving Trump. And it's an interesting picture seeing these Orthodox Jews with big black coats and a big old hat and tassels all dancing in the street celebrating because the embassy is open in Jerusalem 70 years after. They had all these uh, analogies to the 70-year Babylonian exile and and they had talking about the connection between Trump and Cyrus and being friends of the Jewish people. And when we were staying at this hotel in the, right at the Jaffa Gate, and I was trying to go to sleep about 10, 11 o'clock at night, and, they were, and all the Jews were out there partying, shooting off fireworks. I mean, all night. It was just a, it was a massive party all throughout the place. And so it was a, it was a lot of fun time. You mentioned going to the Hervis Synagogue. Oh, I went to the, the Hervis Synagogue is the very center of the Jewish quarter. It's, uh, during the 48 war, that was like the Jewish Alamo, the bunch of people held out there to the end until they were finally conquered by the Jordanian Legion. But now it's been rebuilt, and it's the center of, the, of Jewish life in the in old city of Jerusalem. And the whole Hervis Synagogue was draped with banners from the top to the bottom. This is probably 200 feet tall. I'm not sure. I don't remember exactly. Something like that. Very tall, and these, these banners have the same uh, messages on them about you know, all pro-Trump banners that Trump makes Israel great again. 
And it was just in the middle of the whole Jewish quarter, and everyone saw as they came by. About two days later, they they took him down. I was there when they took him down. It was kind of interesting to watch them all float down from the top. But it was a real neat time. So that's important to have that put that up on the have that up on the internet because the mainstream media, not just in America but around the world, refuse to show any of that because it goes against their narrative of how evil Trump is. But the Jewish people don't think that they love him, especially after the previous previous eight years. So that's great to have that. Glad you did that, John. That was good for us to be able to hear that. Okay. Uh, we are in First Peter 4.8. I want to review. It's been three or four weeks since we were last here, so I want to cover a little review on spiritual gifts. So you don't need to turn to First Peter 4.8. I'll run through a quick review of where we were. But our main focus is going to be uh, over in First Corinthians chapter 12 and chapter 13 in talking about uh, spiritual gifts. And so in uh, 1 Peter 4, 8 introduces the importance of love for one another. Love is foundational in the spiritual life. John 13, 34, and 35, Jesus said that we're to love one another as he has loved us, and by this all men will know that we are his disciples. That is the decisive mark of a spiritually growing, spiritually maturing believer. And in verse 10 then, in these four verses that are um, uh, listed there together, at the close of this section of, of first, first Peter, Peter writes, As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And I just want you to note, without any looking at the Greek words yet, that you ought to key in on about four words there. First of all, gift. Second, minister. Third, stewards and fourth grace. Those are the key words in that passage. And just by looking at it, uh, the relationship of the command to minister it to one another tells us that gifts are for the use of one another within the body of Christ. And that the focus of the gift is not what is my gift, but how do I serve? And that would be the theme that I want to emphasize here on the meaning of what a spiritual gift is. I'm giving it a new twist of meaning that hasn't been brought out and is not brought out by most by most people. The word for gift is the Greek word charisma. Charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, is the Greek word for grace. So that's the root meaning of it. It just means something of grace something gracious. It doesn't mean spiritual gift. It is translated spiritual gift, and in some places it relates to some kind of gift, not a spiritual gift. It is talking about something related to grace, and there's about three or four different ways in which this word is used in the New Testament. So it's not a technical word for a spiritual gift. It is one of four words that relate to uh, what we call spiritual uh, spiritual gifts. The next word is the verb diakoneo, which is a pre present active participle used here in a, as an imperatival, or excuse me, in a, in a, as a participle of purpose, for the purpose of ministering to one another, and that, that has something of an imperatival sense. And so that's the, the function of the gift. And one of the things that, that I have realized going back through doing additional study on this word uh, a month ago when we were doing this is that in most of the passages the focus isn't on like what's my talent the focus is on how do I serve it's a it's an action item it's all related to service it's not related to this sort of of um, self-absorbed navel-gazing what am I going to do with my life? How am I going to serve? And what you typically find in the church growth-oriented mentality of the purpose-driven uh, heresy that dominates churches today is that you have to know your spiritual gift or you just can't grow. And that's not biblical. You have to know the Word of God. That's how you grow. We grow by means of the Word of God. Peter says at the end of 
Second Peter, in Second Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't say grow in your spiritual gift. It's not about you. And unfortunately, this is what comes across. I just, for funs and grins today, I did a, um, I did a Google search on uh, spiritual gift tests. And you have spiritual gift exams and spiritual gift instruments and all these different things. And many of them are connected with just secular psychological exams to determine what your character traits are. That's just pure human viewpoint garbage. That has nothing to do with the Bible. The message they convey that nobody gets is, I don't learn about spiritual gifts by studying the Bible. I'm going to learn about my spiritual gift by studying psychology and by going to some sort of secular psychological instrument in order to understand this. And it just shows the compromise at the basic biblical authority. And most of these people would say that they affirm infallibility and inerrancy. No, they don't. They, they destroy it by their lack of belief in the sufficiency of Scripture. They don't believe that Christ is sufficient. They don't believe grace is sufficient. They don't believe the Bible is sufficient. They tone it down in other ways that become somewhat uh, socially acceptable within evangelical uh, circles. So this word minister, diaconel, we get our word deacon from the, from the noun, and it's the idea of serving one another. That's the emphasis. And it's uh, part of being a steward, someone who has an administrative responsibility. We are to administer this ability that God has given us, this service, and that's how we administer it, is by serving in whatever capacity. And and it's part of the uh, diversity. If there's real diversity uh, anywhere, it's in the grace of God. That's what we see here in 1 Peter 4.10. So what we learned, just the summary I went through the last time, each one means each believer. Each believer has received at least one gift. There's some... Uh, um, controversy or discussion about whether every believer has one gift or more than one gift i've always thought that they have they have they can have more than one gift even though the examples are all of one gift i think they're just talking in terms of of examples they're not there's there's no place where you can go and say this definitively shows that a believer has no more than one gift i think the apostles had all the gifts they spoke in tongues, in languages they hadn't learned. They could interpret. They had uh, gifts of leadership. They had gifts of teaching, of healing, of miracles, uh, of service. So this was they, they exhibited uh, service in every one of these uh, of these areas. Second, the meaning of charisma emphasizes the grace basis of this gift. But it really focuses on and emphasizes function more than what's my gift, what's my talent. It's not that kind of a thing. We ask that question, well, what's my talent? It's all about me. The question should be, how can I serve? What can I do to enhance the local body of believers? So the emphasis is on function. Fourth, these ministries are related to our responsible management of what God has graciously given us. So we are to responsibly use this. There's something bestowed upon us at the instant of salvation, and it's our responsibility to develop it. And we don't develop it. Nobody in the Scripture goes around going, what's my spiritual gift? We develop it by growing to spiritual maturity. And what happens is that we... As we serve in the body of Christ, we'll find that we are effective in other areas, not quite so effective in other areas, and those are the areas where we have uh, enhancements to service. Fifth, each believer receives at least one spiritual gift from the Spirit, since it says the Spirit is said to distribute a gift to each one. It comes from the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that as we develop the, the gifts. So all of us are to be ministering to the whole. This is part of grace orientation. So that's just what we get out of the First Peter passage. Then we went into looking at what the Bible teaches about spiritual gifts, and this is a summary, an introduction. We're not going to go through each one, but it gives us an overview 
of, um, of what the Bible does, does teach. And first of all, like in everything, we need to start with a definition. So how do we define this? And I have, um, thought I'd change that. Uh, I changed it in my notes. I didn't change it on the slide. I revised this definition a little bit. An ability or enhancement to serve. Okay, instead of a talent, ability, or aptitude, I change this to an ability or enhancement to serve. It is an aptitude that is sovereignly bestowed on every believer in the church age by the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. So everybody has a spiritual gift. And at that point, people go, well, what's my spiritual gift? You see the sort of the deer in the headlights kind of look on people's face, and I don't know what my... I've been saved for 30 years. I don't know what my spiritual gift is. Well, there's a false assumption that you have to know what it is to be able to serve in the body of Christ, and you don't. If you serve and just do whatever, eventually it will manifest itself. It's just a matter of, of serving. So it's a spiritual gift. And there are four biblical terms that are related that are used in different passages. Okay, so the word charisma that we talked about initially, which is used in the First Peter 4.10 passage, and in, it's also used along with other words in the First Corinthians 12 passage, is a word that focuses on the grace basis for these enhancements for these abilities to serve. So the first word is that's used to describe them is the word pneumaticone. Uh, pneumaticone, and it, that emphasizes the source and the nature of the gift from pneuma. It's God the Holy Spirit. So each person in the Trinity is involved with this, but it is this primarily comes under the responsibility of God the Holy Spirit. So it's part of our spiritual life. It's not part of the package that relates to our walk by the Spirit, but it's part of the many things that God does for us at the instant of salvation. We receive this potential enhancement, but in order for it to move from uh, being potential to being active, we have to grow as a believer. And I often use the analogy that uh, when many people are young, they go through their adolescent years, and sometimes their talents, their strengths are apparent earlier, but many of them, when they reach the age of anywhere from 13 to 18, they start thinking about, what am I going to do when I grow up? Some people are still thinking that at 70, but that's probably due to another problem. They haven't matured enough, but that's another issue. So as you go through life, you discover that you're good at some things and you're not good at some things. When I was uh, when I was a kid, I loved to do sport athletic type of things, loved to play kickball and baseball and neighborhood football and things like that. But then when you get to school and there's a bunch of other kids that are a lot more talented, you discover you're just not in that league. So that's not what you're going to be spending your life doing as much as you want might have aspirations to being a major league baseball player. Other people will discover they have musical abilities. Others discover that they have other uh, characteristics or attributes in their, in their personality that can be developed and used in different fields of life. And so as they get older and as they participate in life and in things, then it becomes apparent what their strengths are and what their weaknesses are. But that's a result of growing up and being involved in things and doing things to discover their abilities. And that's similar to what goes on with the spirit, with these enhancements to service, is that you grow up um, spiritually, and as you do, you realize you're to serve one another, be involved in the church. You're not supposed to just sit there like a bump on a log, but God has a role for you within that local body of believers. Now, it may be uh, that you have uh, gifts related to service and prayer, and that's not a visible activity, you're, but you're faithful in praying for one another. You may have other gifts related to giving, 
And I don't think this is true for everybody who has a gift of giving, but I know that there are some people that have been, uh, that I've known over the years that they have a gift of giving, but God's also given them a, uh, the ability to make money. So they have a lot of financial resources to give. And they've been a real blessing to many, many ministries uh, over the years. You can go through just about any solid ministry, and there are men of this caliber who live, in many cases, relatively humble uh, lifestyles, but they're able to make a lot in order to help uh, fund the logistical needs for various, various ministries. So these are often in the background. They're not seen. Other gifts are seen, people who have the gift of mercy. Uh, you know, a church with people who have the gift of mercy can organize uh, teams of visitors who go down to, who ha- also have the gift of mercy and go down to the hospital, go to nursing homes, do things like this to visit those in the, in the body of Christ who are uh, in the hospital or nursing homes or things like that. And that is a very important uh, ministry. I was. Uh, many of you know that one of the men that we are uh, praying for is uh, Freddie Cortez. Freddie is a pastor in Southern California. He's Filipino. I first met uh, Freddie and his wife uh, a number of years ago when I was in Preston City. His wife at that time was in the Coast Guard. Got transferred to the Coast Guard Academy as a yeoman, and so he took a leave of absence from his church and came to uh, Connecticut and. Uh, found out about me because he'd been a student at Chafer Seminary, contacted me, and he started coming to uh, Preston City and just have had a significant ministry in his life um, in his life over, over the years. And he recently had a stroke and some other things that went on. He was in the hospital, and I talked to him right before I, I left for Israel, and he was just telling me, Robbie, he said, I can't express enough how important it is to tell people to visit people in the hospital that this is so important there just there can be just a sense of isolation and being alone now that may not be true for everybody. I know some people don't want anybody to see them. I mean they haven't had makeup on in three or four weeks and their hair's not done, and all of these things that are really not relevant. I know I'm going to get in trouble for that. <laughs> But So they don't want anybody to come see them. In other words, don't use your spiritual gift on me. Let me live in isolation until I can come back. I'm, you know, never mind. That's just a problem. We need to have a service mentality, and that's what he was emphasizing. He said it was so important when people came from the church, uh, his wife was down there, uh, you know, especially with the seriousness of what he had, there's just such a level of uncertainty. He said, you just can't imagine how significant that is when people are coming just to just to poke their head in the door and say hi, not to bother them too much, uh, or to just read scripture with them or to pray with them, but just to know that there's they're they're out there and they're they're uh, thinking about them and praying for them. Okay, one word, pneumaticone, it comes from the Holy Spirit. Charisma emphasizes the grace nature of these gifts. And they're not based on any merit in the individual believer. And we know that God gives them in different degrees of measure so that some people have a great uh, degree of the spiritual gift, others uh, less. But it, it, and sometimes it may enhance a natural ability and sometimes not. I think there's a lot of things that are said in that area that, that you can't really prove from Scripture, but everybody just wants to know how those things work. Um, third word is marismos, which has the idea of making a division or a sep- separation or a distribution of a portion. So this is a portion by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Hebrews 2, 4 says, God, that's the subject, God the Father, also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts, marismas, not charisma, not pneumaticos, but marismas, apportionments, distributions of the Holy Spirit. So there the emphasis is on something the Holy Spirit is doing according to his will that would refer back to the father uh, the will of god the father 
And then the fourth word is this word, phonerosis. And phonerosis is a word that means a manifestation of something or a disclosure of something. And it's referred to in First uh, Corinthians twelve seven. But the manifestation of the Spirit, that is, the manifestation of this service uh, enhancement, is given to each one for the profit of all. Of all is usually in italics because it's not stated as such in the passage, but it's inherent within the flow of what is being said there. So it's not for the profit of the individual. It's not about me. It's about the body of Christ and that I've been given this enhancement to serve the body of Christ. I pointed out the last time that I've heard people say, well, I have this gift of administration and I use that at work. No, you don't. It's for the body of Christ. It's not for those pagans you work with. It's not for unbelievers. Spiritual gifts are used for the body of Christ. And that's one reason why it's important to get together with other believers. Now, I know we live in an era when when people are spread out, and I hear stories, and I heard stories when we went to Israel about how horrible churches are. And one lady on the trip was telling me about a large church fully into contemporary Christian worship and and told me about a practice, and I've heard about this over the years at different churches, and I think that, to me, the fact that they do this shows is an admission that they shouldn't be doing it, okay? You know what they do? You go to a lot of these big churches, you know what they do? Especially most of us, they give you they give you, uh, you know, earplugs when you come into church to worship because the drums are so loud and the uh, worship team is so loud that, that they know that that bothers people. You know, my solution was get rid of the worship team and go back to biblical worship. Don't, don't try to cover it up with, with these earplugs. The very fact that you do this is an admission that, that somehow this is wrong and you really know it, but you're not willing to admit it. So the gifts are given for all. It's not about me. Uh, Recently, I was in a situation where I saw a worship team in operation, and I was watching the expressions of all the people on the team. And I don't want to be judgmental, but these people did not look like they were concerned about what the audience was doing. They were more concerned about their musical presentation. That's not the focus in worship, and it's just a complete distraction. So those are the basic words that are used. Third, spiritual gifts are unique to the church age, and that's an important thing because we have prophets in the Old Testament. We have uh, some prophets perform miracles. Elijah, uh, Elisha raised from the dead. You had other other miracles that were performed by different people. You had the, the spirit who came upon, not in a spiritual life purpose, but in a uh, purpose to give leadership and military skill to the judges. These things happen in the Old Testament, but they're not spiritual gifts. Now, the reason they're not spiritual gifts, I'm going to go back to this definition. Now, this definition is derived from the Scripture. Okay, by by looking at all the different things said about spiritual gifts. So it is inductively derived from the Scripture that it is a gift that's bestowed on every believer in the church age by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't have that kind of ministry in the, in the age of Israel or the age of the Gentiles. doesn't have that kind of ministry in the tribulation period. And the gifts that are given... Uh, the role of the Holy Spirit in the Millennial Kingdom is part of the New Covenant. It's similar to, but not the same as, the role of the Holy Spirit in the Church Age. So these are distinct to the Church Age. You don't, you can't go back to the Old Testament and say, "Oh well, they this is like what we're doing in the New Testament." That violates the biblical distinction between what God is doing in Israel and what God is doing in the Church. These are unique to the Body of Christ. Fourth thing that we learn is that spiritual gifts are the direct result of the ascension of Christ. And we see that in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. 
currently he is in his what is called the session, which is a, uh, a somewhat antiquated word that means to be seated. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. So theologically, we refer to that as his session. And he is in at his session waiting at the right hand of God the Father for the kingdom to be given to him. But we are told that when he ascended in Acts chapter 1, that he gave spiritual gifts. And we see this in Ephesians 4, 7, and 8. But to each one of us, grace was given. Grace is therefore the cause is put for the result, which is the gift. Uh, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Those are the spiritual gifts. So it's distributed here in the other passage, distributed by the Holy Spirit, here uh, by God the Son. So we see the role of God the Son in this, in that he is in an authority position over the Spirit. Now, that's important to understand that even within the Trinity, there are authority relationships, and the Son is submitted to the Father, and the Spirit is submitted to the Father and the Son. This quotation in Ephesians 4.8, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men, is taken out of Psalm 68.18, which is a called an ascension psalm that was sung as the Jews went up the hill to the temple. That's the hill of Moriah, which is where the temple was built. And so as they ascended on these feast days, they would have these huge processions. The Levitical orchestra and the Levitical choirs would be out there, and they would, uh, they would sing all of these uh, songs in praise to God, and there would be a distribution of gifts. So that analogy, that became a type of what Christ does when he ascends to heaven and distribute spiritual gifts. The fifth thing that we see that's taught by Scripture is all the members of the Trinity are involved. Just as in creation, God the Father is the architect and the planner, God the Son is the one who uh, executes the plan, and God the Holy Spirit is the one who sustains the plan. And so we have God the Father's role indicated in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4, that God... Uh, bear witness with signs with various miracles, gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will, God the Father. God the Son's involved uh, according to the measure of Christ's gift, he, and when he ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. These are the spiritual gifts. So if he gave these gifts when he ascended to heaven, can they be related to the gifts, to be related to prophets and teaching and miracles in the Old Testament. No, because these gifts don't come until Christ is ascended. They can't be identified with Old Testament uh, manifestations. And God the Holy Spirit is involved, 1 Corinthians twelve eleven. but one in the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. Since the Trinity is a unity, what the Father wills, the Son wills, what the Son wills, the Holy Spirit wills. And so you can say that the Holy Spirit distributes according to his will, but so does the Son and so does the Father because their will is in absolute harmony. Okay, the sixth point is that spiritual gifts are not earned or deserved. The gift itself is not developed or learned but its use may be learned. Now, this is something that is really important, and people need to pay attention to this because I've heard this so many times. Well, so-and-so has the gift of spirit, uh, a pastor-teacher, so, so why don't we just let him st give, give him the Bible let him stand up and teach us? Okay, he doesn't need to study, does he? He just has the gift of pastor-teacher, so bing, bang, boom, let him get up there. That is so puerile. That is That it ignores all the passages in Scripture that emphasize the importance of reading and studying and meditating. 
and and the fact that um, that in the history of Christianity, it's and in the history of biblical Judaism in the Old Testament, as well as what became rabbinical Judaism later, the importance of studying, the importance of learning, memorizing. I, sometimes when I look at what secular Jews do, I'm embarrassed at what evangelicals do. We have such a low bar. I mean, among secular Jews who have a respect for the Torah, by the time you're five or six, you've memorized the Torah. By the time you're 13, you've memorized the Old Testament. And we have Christians who can't memorize 10 verses to be able to give a cogent gospel presentation. And we don't emphasize it. We're lazy. It's disrespectful of the Word of God. And it's not good for, our, for us. I mean, if you want to put it in, spe- in, uh, in personal tones, if you engage in memorizing anything, it's going to enhance your ability to think, your ability to reason, your ability to remember. Uh, it's going to be good for your brain. But if it's the Word of God, it's got a spiritual benefit. And we all ought to be involved in memorizing Scripture. It's part of what Scripture means by meditating on the Word. It's not just, and I saw this. This was the first time I've, I've ever seen it outside of a TV or anything. I was in the, um, in the airport in Albuquerque, and I went over to the gate to sit before the, the plane took off, and there's this guy. Sit, sit, he's sitting against a wall in the chair in the, in the gate area, and he's sitting with his seat, with his butt on the back of the chair and his feet in the seat of the chair. He's got his knees up, and he's in the meditation, meditating position, and he's just got his eyes closed, and he's just, you know. That's not biblical meditation. Biblical meditation is chewing on the Word of God. It's thinking about it. It's, and when you memorize Scripture, you memorize phrase by phrase, and you memorize a phrase, and then you add a phrase, and you think about it. You work with it so that it, it, you make connections in your mind so that you can remember it, and then you add to it. And it forces you to really think about what is being said so that you can, you can memorize it. Spiritual gifts have to be developed. A pastor has to develop. He needs to go somewhere where he will be challenged intellectually, where he will be challenged in the area of personal discipline and time management, where he has to learn a tremendous amount of of material in a short amount of time. We have too many people who have low expectations of what is required for a pastor. If you're a student of American church history, then you realize the level that was expected in the training of a minister in the 1700s and 1800s that most pastors today uh, don't even reach the level of a 17-year-old who is going to go into the ministry in the colonial period. I mean, by the time they went to College, they already knew Greek and Hebrew and Latin better than I knew them after I had a master's in theology. We just, we, we've lowered the bar so much. And we, you know, somebody gets up there, and in a lot of churches what happens is when they get up, when the pastor leaves, they don't know what to do. And so they, they just sort of flop around for a little while, and then, then they get frustrated because they don't have a leader. And then like sheep, which is never a compliment in the Scripture, then like sheep, they'll take the first person with a heartbeat that comes along and is able to put five words together and make a complete sentence. And it's usually a disaster. You've got to have a high standard for the Word of God as it's being taught in the pulpit and the training of a pastor. Uh, there's two categories of spiritual gifts. We've gone over this before. There are permanent gifts and there are temporary gifts. The temporary gifts had purposes that were limited in time, okay? And those were, are, are even further uh, subdivided. Temporary gifts can be uh, classified as either revelatory gifts, like knowledge and prophecy, or they are sign gifts. Healing and tongues were sign gifts. They, they gave uh, certain... Uh, tongues were sign gifts related to Israel uh, healing would be assigned gifts related to uh, demonstrating the uh, the, the uh, 
credibility of the apostle that they would give his uh, they would authenticate uh, his his message so you have knowledge wisdom prophecy apostle these are revelatory it's in a time when the canon is not complete yet tongues miracles faith are sign gifts so if we look at 1 Corinthians 13, so oh, I hope you're there in your Bible. Look at it. We're going to run through this fairly quickly. The very first line of 1 Corinthians 13:8 is a topical statement for what will follow. It mirrors what comes at the end. Love never fails. That means it's permanent. If you look at 13.13, we read, And now abide faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Why is it the greatest? Because it's permanent. Love never fails. So that brackets this section, beautiful section of Scripture. And then what Paul says is that there are, he talks about three different gifts, prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. Now it's interesting when he goes through this, he talks about knowledge, of prophecies first, and says they'll fail, they'll be abolished. Then he talks about tongues, they will cease. Different word, different concept, different grammatical expression. And then the third is knowledge. He says the same thing about knowledge. It will vanish away. Now, prophecy and knowledge are both revelatory gifts. So those have to do with revelation. Whereas tongues is sandwiched in the middle, and it is a sign gift. And, and the cessation of tongues is related to its purpose, okay? And then in verse 9, Paul goes on to say, we know in part, and we prophesy in part. Notice how he left out any statement about tongues. He's continuing to discuss revelation. And what he's saying is, our knowledge is incomplete, and prophecy is incomplete. In other words, we have a lot of the Word of God, but it's not complete yet. It's like having 70% of the pieces in a jigsaw puzzle, and we haven't been given the other 30% yet. So that's the idea in these verses. So let's break it down. First of all, he says love is permanent. That means it's, it, it's, there's a contrast here between that which is eternal and that which is temporal. All of the gifts are temporal. Okay, so we're not talking about some of the gifts that go into eternity. That's not part of it. Prophesy, prophecy and knowledge are revelatory gifts, and they're abolished. Same verb there that links them together. They're always taken as a, as a, as a package. Third, prophecy and knowledge are both partial. They're in part because of in, its incomplete revelation. These are revelatory gifts. But they're partial. Even Paul didn't know the whole package. Paul was given certain amount, a significant amount, the mystery doctrine of the church age, and he knew things Peter didn't know, but Peter's revealed things that Paul didn't know. And John knew things that neither Peter nor Paul knew, but no apostle knew all of it. It's all incomplete until the whole canon was complete and you had all the pieces there on the table. Fourth, tongues is different from prophecy and knowledge. It's a sign gift, and it ceases when that which it signifies has come. It's pointing to something, and until you see what it's pointing to, until that's fulfilled, it's going to be around. But once that comes, it's going to stop just because it's no longer needed. And that's described in 1 Corinthians fourteen twenty-one and 22. Paul says, in the law it is written. So he quotes a prophecy from Isaiah 28, 11, and 12, which is based on a prophecy from Deuteronomy 28, 49. With men of other languages and other lips, I will speak to this people. God, is te- God told Israel that they would come under divine discipline in uh, Deuteronomy 28, 49. And I didn't get that into the... Did I? No. Yeah, I did. No, I didn't. In, in Deuteronomy 28:49, there is the prophecy that statement that as Israel comes under divine discipline, what will happen is they will hear the word of God in other languages. See, that privilege of being the custodian of Scripture 
was given to Israel. And so when God says, I'm taking that away from you, it's a sign of judgment because you're going to hear it in foreign languages and it's going to sound like people are just stammering, they're, they're muttering, and, and it's gibberish. And if you want to know what that sounds like, walk through the old city of Jerusalem sometime when there's uh, 20 or 30 different tour groups and you have Japanese and Filipino and Indonesians and Indians and Americans and French and Germans, and they're all talking as you go by, and it just sounds like the Tower of Babel. So that's the sign of judgment. When you start hearing the Word of God that it's supposed to be in Hebrew, and you're hearing it in Gentile languages, pay attention, because that's a sign of judgment. That's what Paul says in 14.22, Therefore tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. See, its, it's role isn't in the church. It is a sign to unbelieving Jews that judgment is coming. When they hear the gospel, it's not the content. You know, people got this really wrong idea that the purpose for tongues was to give the gospel in other languages, that it was a missionary tool. No, no, no place in Scripture says that. It was a sign of judgment. When Jews heard the word of God on the Temple Mount in Acts 2 in Gentile languages, and Gentiles weren't supposed to go past the wall of the Gentile, the court of the Gentiles, this was a sign of judgment. If they knew Scripture, they knew judgment's coming because we're hearing the Word of God in all these other languages here on the Temple Mount. From Now, Isaiah 28, 11 and 12 says this, For with stammering lips and another tongue he will speak to this people. And the whole passage goes on to talk about this sign of judgment. That's the context. Okay, back to... First uh, Corinthians thirteen ten, that in in nine it says we know partially it's incomplete our prophecy is incomplete. Then there's a contrast. But when something called the perfect has come, then that which is incomplete will be done away with. It why because it will become complete. The teleos here is that which fulfills something or which completes something or brings something to maturity. Now this is a a passage that tells us when this happens. So that which is in part, revelatory gifts, are done away with by the perfect, since partial revelation is done away with with something that completes it. It has to be kind completing kind. Now to show you how perverted this has become, this is an outstanding position, but... Bruce Bumgardner told me that when he went through Dallas Seminary in the mid-90s, he had a professor who I had had, who at the time I had him was really good, later on he was not, um, who told them they were to write a position paper in their class on the on tongues. But he said, I don't want anybody taking the position that the perfect is the canon of Scripture because nobody believes that anymore. I've often wanted to ask him why then, since in the last 20 years, there are at least five position, five theological articles published in first-class theological journals that all take that position. One was written by me, one was written by Andy Woods, one was, and then there were a couple of others written by some other people. And so this is the most cogent position. And it, it makes perfect sense. So what this is saying is only the completed perfect canon fits the bill for this. It can complete incomplete revelation. It's used this way, the word teleos in James one twenty five. he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it. So there's biblical precedent by comparing Scripture with Scripture. In verse 11, Paul uses an illustration to show the progression from incomplete to complete. A child has incomplete information, incomplete knowledge. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, maturity, I put away childish things. Maturity is teleos in Scripture, so that's illustrating this progression. Then in verse 12, he's going to talk about the progression as it applies first to revelation, knowledge, 
and second to prophecy. Or I got that in reverse. The first part is prophecy. The second part is knowledge. Okay, we see through a mirror dimly. Uses these two illustrations moving from partial to complete. The first is prophecy. The second half of verse 12 is talking about knowledge. The word dimly is the Greek word enigma, where we get our English word enigma, something that is puzzling, something that is unclear, something that we don't understand. It's used in Numbers 12.8 to refer to God's incomplete revelation uh, at the time of Moses. We read, I speak with him, Moses is speaking, I speak with him, uh, no, God is speaking, I speak with him, Moses face to face, even plainly and not in dark sayings. See, to others he spoke in dark sayings. That's the, the Septuagint translated that with enigma. So somebody who knew the Old Testament and read First uh, Corinthians thirteen twelve would understand this. In a mirror, what do you look at in a mirror? See, the old King James translated, I see through a glass darkly. That's like you've got bad window panes and you're looking through it and what's on the other side is distorted. That isn't what the Greek says. When it said a glass, that was an antiquated way of talking about a mirror, a looking glass. It's when I see through a mirror enigmatically. What do you look at when you look in the mirror? You look at yourself. What is the Word of God compared to? It's a mirror. When you look into the mirror of God's law, that takes us back to James 1 again. So we look and we see ourselves. But if the mirror isn't complete, we don't see a complete picture of ourselves. And so that's, that's the idea here. Now we see in this mirror we can't get a clear picture of who we are from a complete canon of Scripture because it's incomplete. And then you have the phrase, but then face-to-face, and people always think, well, that must mean face-to-face with God. But it's face-to-face with yourself in the mirror, the mirror of God's Word. So you have to understand the context to get to that. Now, in the next verse we read, Having covered, uh, we see the two issues that uh, dimly relates to prophecy going back to numbers. And knowledge in uh, 12b is the idea that now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also know. The word in part is the same phrase in the Greek that is used earlier, that now we, we prophesy in part and we know in part. And when that which is per- perfect has come, that which is in part will be done away with. So it, it you can connect the dots all the way through in the Greek. So you have the first part of verse 12. Now we see in a mirror enigmatically, but then face to face. That's talking about prophecy. It's incomplete. The second talks about knowledge. It's incomplete. And then we come to verse... Wait a minute. I want to say one more thing about that. I'm probably... For... Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. What's the now and what's the then? See, 99% of the time, somebody's going to say the now is here on earth, but because they take the face to face to be with God, the then is when we're in heaven. Interesting thing here is that the now here is not the same Greek word as the now in verse 13 that says, and now abide faith, hope, and love. This really cracks open this passage. Verse 12, well, now we see through a mirror dimly. Uh, I went back too far earlier. Let me get past these slides. Okay, here we go. Verse 13 says, and now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Then now in verse 12 is an immediate now. It's the Greek word arty. And, me, and when Ardi and Nuni, Nuni is the word that is used in verse 13, when they're used in the same context, Ardi means right now. Nuni means like now this week or now this month or now this year. It's a broader now. But Ardi would be like an immediate now. So what basically what Paul is saying here is now in this apostolic period when the canon of Scripture hasn't been completed, we have an incomplete canon, and we see enigmatically because it's not a whole yet. 
and I know in part, and I prophesy in part, but then when it is complete, I shall know just as I am known. See, that's this self this this self-exposure of the Word of God when we're face-to-face in a mirror. And then in the last verse he says, but now, that is now in the church age, faith, hope, and love continue in in contrast to knowledge and prophecy, which are partial, and tongues. They don't continue. But faith, hope, and love continue The greatest of these is love. Why? Because in verse 8 it said love never fails. Now the question is, well, Robbie, tell me why this isn't talking about face-to-face with God. Because face-to-face with God, what this is saying is that the then is when faith, hope, and love continue. But let's see what Scripture says. Hebrews 11, 11, 11, 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So faith is related to things that are not seen. In 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith and not by sight. But when we die and we're with the Lord, we're walking by sight, not by faith. That's what 1 Corinthians Second Corinthians five eight goes on to say, so faith is not operational after we die, or after the Lord returns. So therefore, this passage can't be talking about uh, now we see enigmatically, but then when we're with heaven face to face, we can't be talking about that because faith doesn't continue into heaven. It's for now. Same thing with hope. In Romans 8.24, for we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. When we're face-to-face with the Lord, we're going to see there's not going to be any more hope either. That's why love is the only thing that continues. So it's not this idea that, uh, that that, that these gifts continue until Jesus returns or I die and I'm face-to-face with the Lord and then I'll, I'll really understand things because I'll be face-to-face with him. What it is saying is that these gifts are temporary now, and after they're gone, what will continue is faith, hope, and love. And when we die and we go to be with the Lord, then hope and faith will no longer continue. Love will continue. That's why the greatest of these is love. What's interesting is in the last 20 years, I don't know of anybody who argues about tongues anymore. John, do you run into people who really argue about tongues that much? In jail all the time. Well, of course. Um, But I really don't. Maybe I've gotten more isolated, but I've talked to other pastors, and and it's not the battle. The the charismatic movement's been taken over by the prosperity theology movement so much that this has kind of taken, uh, taken a background. Now, going on to verse to the eighth point, we'll wrap this up pretty quickly. The per- purpose for the permanent spiritual gifts is mutual ministry and service in the body of Christ. Spiritual gifts and their use isn't part of spiritual growth. It's a result of spiritual growth. It's our desire to serve one another. And that is the purpose, is to give us enhanced abilities to serve. But the issue is get out there and serve. Ninth, it's necessary it is not necessary to identify your spiritual gift in order to use it. There are a lot of people who never know. It doesn't matter if you know your spiritual gift. If you're growing and maturing and you're seeking to serve people, your enhancement to serve will be uh, noticed and identified. We're just to focus on serving one another in the body of Christ. And that's why, I'm sorry to make this point earlier, that's why it's important uh, there are a lot of places today where people are isolated, and so they sit at home, and they listen, and they listen online, and there's nobody for them to, to get. They think, well, I, I just can't go to any church in, in, anywhere around because they're all heretical. They're all really, really bad. Uh, I just can't go there. But when I say that we need to get together, that doesn't mean that you, um, you have to go to some wacko church somewhere. 
You can talk with other people. You can witness other people. You can get members of your family. You can get three or four families together at times. And there, there are small groups that I know about that they will get together uh, around uh, wherever they are. They'll find some other believers who will meet with them. And that is assembling yourselves together. Don't think of assembling yourselves together as, as a large group necessarily. It may just be two or three other believers that you're with, and hopefully you can pray, and God will uh, give you some other believers that you can spend time with. Sadly today, from what I hear with some people, is even the believers they find are so messed up that they're judgmental and, and uh, lots of other problems. So it, it's not easy in some areas to even find other believers that they can have a good biblical uh, rapport with. Eleventh point, spiritual gifts have spiritual efficacy only when operating under the filling of the Holy Spirit. That is, if you're walking by the Spirit, then when you are serving one another, it has value for eternity, but if you're doing it in the works of the flesh, then it doesn't. That just is like any other area of the spiritual life. And then twelfth, the last point, the body of Christ is like a team with many different positions, each requiring different abilities, uh, each oriented to the authority of the quarterback. Some are more dramatic and overt. Others operate behind the scenes. Uh, no, no running back, no quarterback, no tight end can do his job without the, the guards and the centers and the tackles doing their job. That's the importance of these gifts. But the bottom line is serve one another and they will be manifested. Next time we'll come back to look at First Peter 4.11. Uh, If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers or serves, let him do it as with his ability which God supplies. That takes us back to charisma again. That in all things God may be glorified. It's all about God. It's never about us. Through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father, thank you for this time to look at your word tonight, to be encouraged, to be strengthened to understand that we're to serve one another. We are, each one of us has a vital role to play within the local church, within the body of Christ. Uh, some will be more apparent, others less apparent, but we're all part of that local body. And you have provided each one of us for this body for a reason to serve one another. Father, challenge us in this area. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.